Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here's your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. I'd like to welcome Nathan Ohl, who's the president and chief executive officer of IEDC, International Economic Development Council, uh, to our program today. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, so Nathan, let's start with uh, a very basic question. Uh, why did you decide to uh, take on this role? Well, it's a great question uh, and one that that was not easy for me to take. So before coming to the IDC, I led an organization called the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, or RCAP. And RCAP is a tremendous organization with tremendous people and a, and a, and a mission that really hits home to me. I spent almost five years at RCAP helping to build the organization and certainly the work that's happening on the ground in communities across the country. And I was not looking in any way, shape, or form to leave. I love the work. I love the people. I love the organization. It just so happened that IEDC was one of those few opportunities that I just couldn't pass up. This organization has a tremendous history and background in driving economic development communities of all sizes. And the opportunity to lead the organization to help continue to further the growth of the organization and certainly to further the, the economic development field across the country and internationally was one that I just couldn't pass up. You bring some very unique values to the table. And like you said, it's such a storied organization. Can you tell us a little bit about a key word you used in your welcome message? This was about equitable access. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, equity and why equity is so important in economic development? I personally think that equity is the fundamental aspect of economic development, the core of what every community, regardless of size, shape, geography across the world, uses to drive economic opportunity. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that every community and every part of every community has, has benefited from that. But for us as an industry, for us as a community, I think it's really critical for us to think about how do we drive equitable economic outcomes. And that means different things in different communities, different things in different countries, quite frankly. What we think of as equity here in the United States is different than what equity might be in Africa or Asia or Europe uh, or Australia. And so part of it is driving and being very intentional around conversations around equity to provide spaces and opportunity for, for conversations to happen, to make sure that communities as a whole, but also individual pieces of communities are at the table, invited to the table, and have a voice in these conversations is just critical to make sure that we can provide good paying jobs, that we can provide opportunities for people uh, in every part of not just the United States, but the world to lead the lives that they really wanna lead. and. As economic developers, we play a lead role in, in helping to shepherd some of those opportunities along. But if we don't take an equity focus on that work, then we're always going to be leaving folks behind. And that is not an outcome that's, that's beneficial to anyone. The other topic I'm sure uh, you'd love to talk about is rural and the role that economic development can play in uh, protecting our rural communities, helping them grow, uh, addressing their unique challenges. Uh, what uh, are your early plans for how you can bring in your wealth of knowledge in rural into economic development? Well, it will definitely be a big a big part of not just the role, but but certainly our organization and, and the conversation around economic development. The one really unique thing about where we are today is I think there's – we're really at the precipice of, of 
thinking through what the future of economic development looks like. And rural, to me, is a huge part of that, that in some cases gets left out of conversations, in some cases doesn't have an opportunity to be a part of those conversations. I think we can learn a lot, quite frankly, from rural community, rural and tribal communities because they've dealt in many ways, uh, whether it's this pandemic, whether it's a recession from 2008, whether it's other uh, economic transformations that have happened, they've been on the front lines of those transformations. And in some cases, they've done really well in pivoting and finding new opportunities. In some cases, they've fallen further behind. And so for me, the focus on rural will be one piece of this larger puzzle. But there's a lot that we can learn from our rural counterparts. There's a lot that we can help bring resources into rural areas for them to think about what strategies make the most sense for them. And quite frankly, the real focus to me is how do we embed wealth locally and communities of all sizes. We've got to get away from from an extraction-based economy, especially in rural and tribal areas. And so investing in our people, investing in our places, and putting strategies together that are going to bring everyone to the table and allow for that whatever wealth is being generated to stick locally is going to be critical. And rural is going to play a huge part, not just in the conversations, but actually implementing strategies that are going to do that. You said something that's really interesting, which is you talk about wealth creation. We don't talk about wealth creation when it comes to economic development very naturally. Because traditionally, economic development has been looked at business business attraction, retention, more about macro wealth creation, like, you know, looking at GDP of a city, if you will, uh, over time, but not about wealth creation when it comes to the local communities and people and are we actually moving the needle? And that's usually left to family foundations, community foundations. You see people like the Kaufman Foundation doing that work and and. Uh, even starting to talk a little bit more about entrepreneurship and individual mandates, which traditionally has not been uh, in the wheelhouse of economic development. Uh, uh, I I did a poll. I have about 5,000 economic developers in my LinkedIn account. I did a poll and said, you know, uh, looking at 2022, how many of you think uh, that entrepreneurship is a priority versus housing, affordable housing, or childcare, or business attraction, retention, workforce development, which are all pillars. And uh, entrepreneurship was less than 20% of the focus. (laughs) The number one, of course, was business attraction, retention, because that drives press, that drives large-scale job creation. What is your mandate, and how are you going to change the narrative on that? Well, first of all, I'll start with the fact that, that there's no mandate right? Every community has to identify what the right strategy is for them. And you listed out a a number of ways that economic development plays a role. And there's many others that we didn't mention. I think the first and most important piece is understanding that economic developers play a role in all of these areas. Whether we're talking infrastructure, whether we're talking entrepreneurship, whether we're talking workforce and talent attraction, whether we're talking business development, like true business development, Economic developers play a role in all of those. And oftentimes we get caught in these silos of talking about one here and one here and another over there. And we've got to do a better job of understanding the impact that economic development plays in all of those areas. Be willing to engage in those conversations, whether we're talking about transportation issues or housing issues or workforce development issues. We may not be experts in all of those things, but certainly the work that economic developers are doing hit on each of those areas. And so we've got to understand the impact that those areas have on economic development opportunities, also understand the impact economic development writ large has on each of those areas. So that's the first piece is is thinking about it in a much more holistic approach. 
I think there's also a real need to help communities understand that, yes, there are some traditional economic development approaches that are still being used and still should be used in many cases that are really relevant still today. But there's also a new evolution uh, and, quite frankly, maybe a revolution of economic development practices that are going to be coming in the next decades. And if we don't take the time now to have those conversations, to build out the ideas and the resources behind it, to make sure communities have access to those resources and build their own capacity to start to execute on those strategies, then we're going to leave communities even further behind in the future. And so we've got to be willing to say, yes, there are some typical ways of doing economic development that we're going to continue to do and continue to push and grow upon. But there's also some new areas that we need to push further on and be willing to have conversations with and also be willing to go to conversations about. It can't just be us inviting others to our table. We've got to be willing to go to their tables as well. So talking about going to their tables, how, how many cities have you gone to and what have you seen? And uh, you have, do you have any stories to share with us? Well, at IDC, I've not had a chance to travel yet. I'm only a month and a half in. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to travel, although certainly we will yeah. be traveling quite a bit uh, as things start to open up. And, and COVID obviously has had a huge huge component to that ability to travel and be in communities. But I've been to thousands of communities across the country throughout my my career. And every community is different. I always used to say this at RCAP in the rural perspective, and I think this is also true in the urban perspective. If you've been to one community, you've been to one community. There are certainly similarities in communities, both large and small, but there's also really unique individual characteristics in each community that are assets for that community to build upon. And so that's where I start my approach is, is what are the assets in the community? How do they build on those opportunities? And then when there's opportunities to tell the story, we've got to be much more willing to be storytellers. If we aren't willing to tell our story or the story of our community, no one's going to tell it for us, or it's going to be told in the way that we don't want it to be told. And so we've also got to think about our role. I know this is a lot of different things that we're saying economic developers need to do and be a part of, but we've got to be willing to tell those stories, those unique and, and interesting stories that highlight and showcase and spotlight the work that economic developers are doing, not just here in the United States, but, but abroad. Yeah. So thinking a little bit more deeply about uh, equitable access, and I'm trying to understand, you know, the role of uh, IEDC long term, um, which is that uh, in some communities that we operate in, we see uh, philanthropy playing the role of economic development, be it through piloting programs or uh, helping provide capital access or, you know, uh, trying to basically bridge the gap between economic development and and poverty almost uh, in a lot of communities, right? Uh, we work in communities with Kresge Foundation and the Wilson Foundation and Knight and Bush and Gates and all of them provide critical uh, infrastructure. Uh, how do you see economic development uh, kind of picking up the pieces there? Because, uh, when you put a lot of uh, pressure on philanthropy to fill the gap, you're actually misusing philanthropy because philanthropy is for uh, for providing uh, not money that is for economic development because economic development has incentives to in, uh, invest there. Philanthropy is for where there are gaps in the community. And when, when philanthropy steps in, it's uh, taking dollars for the wrong purpose, right? Because economic development can use taxpayer dollars to go back and reinvest, et cetera. And, uh, talking to some big foundations, they say, you know, philanthropy is doing work in economic development that it shouldn't. It has other purposes it should fulfill. You know, how do you see kind of the fundamental shift uh, in economic development? What do you think, you know, the role of IEDC there is? That's a great question. It, it brings me back 
to a town. I was in Detroit. So I'm from Michigan. So I spent a lot of time in Michigan and Detroit's, you know, close to, close to home Either for way, me. I'll just uh, say that the, the statement I made was from Detroit. <laughs> the, the, the executive director of NEI told me that. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> just context. Yeah. So to me, you know, the really interesting thing. So we're in Detroit. I was at the U.S. Economic Development Administration at the time. So federal agency focused on, on economic development. And one of the things I did strategically when I was there is, is whenever our assistant secretary was traveling, I would try and convene a small group of, of philanthropic leaders in the community to have a conversation, to hear what they were doing, how they were working, all those things. And so we convened the 20 largest foundations in the city of Detroit to talk about economic and workforce development and, and what they were doing. And the most remarkable thing about that meeting was not just the work that they were doing, but that they weren't always talking to one another. And so you had ABC Foundation here working on this, and DEF Foundation was like, oh, we're also working on that in the same neighborhood, but they didn't know about it. And so part of part of the philanthropy piece to this, to me, is the convening power of philanthropy is so powerful. That's where I think the real linkage from an economic development perspective is from the philanthropy side. I think we as economic developers, IDC in particular, have a real specific area that we need to spend some time and focus on, on the equity side. And, you know, IDC just recently launched uh, our equitable economic development playbook, which is a kind of a deep dive into how you drive equitable economic development locally. It's got real practical solutions for practitioners to utilize, but we're also pairing that now with on the ground technical assistance to communities that maybe don't have the capacity to do that work yet. So we're helping them to build that capacity so they can take on these kind of approaches in the long run. I think that's where the community needs to get to is how do we not just provide resources, but how do we help build capacity for communities of all sizes and shapes to be able to participate actively in equitable economic development? There are certainly areas where philanthropy may play a role in helping to fund that capacity building, for example, but it shouldn't be philanthropy's sole purpose to fill the gap around that. It should be to say, okay, we can fund this through federal funds or through state or local funds, but it does not allow us to do this one specific thing within the strategy. And so this is the area where philanthropy might be able to plug in and play a role. And that convening power is really powerful because not only do you get people at the table, anytime philanthropy is hosting something, people want to come, right? Oh, philanthropy is here. There's money. Yeah, except, you know, it, it brings people to the table naturally, but it also, when you can get philanthropy to talk to one another, not just to the community, but to one another, you find really unique ways that, that they might collaborate and fill those gaps that maybe we hadn't thought of in the past. So, uh, you know, I love that you picked Detroit because we've been working extensively in Detroit and the New Economy Initiative, and actually the new executive director comes from economic development. She came from uh, the Wayne County Economic Development, Wafa Dinero, uh, uh, and their whole philosophy is, uh, you know, we'll help kind of bridge the gap, but then economic development needs to come in and pick this up because that's their mandate. Philanthropies is not, right? Uh, so that's uh, such an amazing uh, example of actually doing the work. And they've got almost any foundation you can think of. They've got, you know, everybody there in Detroit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the role of the federal government. And uh, because, you know, you've got the Small Business Administration uh, and the work they're doing to create equitable access through things like the Community Navigator Program, uh, and other programs that they have launched. But I feel like uh, IEDC, through its, uh, through its power, has a unique voice uh, and representation at the table to be able to kind of help the federal government understand what are the challenges on the ground. For example, 
we saw with PPP, the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, right? Because the even the rules were written incorrectly. You needed to have a banking relationship. You need to have cash flow statements. Uh, most small businesses have neither, right? And then there is a lack of trust to go with it. And now, you know, we saw, for example, in Detroit, we were funded by the Kresge Foundation to do a study on Detroit. And we found that blacks were at like 20% application rates for PPP, which a lot of it was forgiven. And whites were at like 80%, right? So I feel like IEDC is a unique voice here uh, at the table to kind of inform the federal government, which is probably the best entity for economic development, especially when it comes to investments. Yeah, it's, it's a really complex issue. And what I will say, whether it's SBA or EDA or CDBG programs, all of them have very good intentions and services and resources that can be really critical, especially to small businesses. But most small businesses have no idea what federal programs there are. PPP came and the reason that small businesses were driven is because there was a really dedicated, specific focus on here's op- here's an opportunity to help you immediately. But then there was no f- backup conversation about, okay, what are the long-term federal resources that these businesses might be able to utilize? One of the issues that I see, and still early in my time here, and so I don't want to you know get too far out of myself, but one of the issues I see is that within the federal family, there aren't a ton of folks that have true local economic development experience. And so if you're talking to SBA or EDA or any of these federal agencies, they've got programs and resources and even the Hill, quite frankly, have programs and resources or thinking about programs and resources, but they don't necessarily know how that actually works with a small business or with a local community. And so I think there's some work to do to try and help educate federal partners on what economic development is and how their programs actually do assist small businesses or, or, or communities in unique ways, because it's going to help them tailor their programs and their resources to make sure that it does reach those communities. There's also work to be done even outside the federal family with organizations like IDC and many others that can help communities and small businesses understand what those resources are. There's a huge gap between what's available and what's actually being utilized and a bigger gap between what's available and what's being utilized by really distressed communities or small businesses that are on the edge. And that's that second gap is the one that I am really focused on because that's the area where if, especially if we're talking grant funds, from federal resources or forgivable loans, those need to be prioritized to those small businesses and to those distressed communities that need those resources the most. And what we end up seeing often is that those communities, those small businesses don't access them because either they don't even know they exist or they don't have the capacity or understanding how to access those resources in the right way. So it goes to areas and communities that, yes, still need those funds and those programs, but maybe have the resources and the wherewithal to do it on their own. And so we've got to figure out how do we both educate the federal government on what economic development is and how programs and and funding flow, but also we've got to help provide that bridge or that gap between those communities and small businesses that need those resources the most to make sure they actually access them. We had an interesting conversation last week. We had a panel on access to capital, alternate access to capital. So our work at uh, Economic Impact Catalyst is to drive these conversations. Uh, we also support communities with technical assistance, but to, to support the national conversation. And so we had a panel last week with national thought leaders, and I posed this question to them. And one of the responses was really interesting. And this is actually a senior director of investment at the Kresge Foundation, Aaron Siebert. This is what he said. He said that I, my question was, why don't communities take more risks? 
with getting this capital out there. Because when you look at economic development and think about entrepreneurship versus uh, providing a safety net for small businesses or for individuals like uh, affordable housing or childcare or whatever, uh, why don't they look at entrepreneurship from the same lens and say, we don't need repayability as the main criteria, but a circular economy where the dollar stays in the community as a better approach to uh, wealth creation. He said that there is a lot of fear in small communities when it comes to federal dollars. And the fact that there are so many guidelines on exact use, and so they don't feel like they have the ability to use the federal dollars outside the regulations because they feel they'll have to pay it back to the federal government. They can come back and ask for the money. And so I look at things like ARPA and SSBCI. Uh, Michigan alone is sitting on like $2 billion worth of ARPA money. It hasn't used, right? There's so much money in states across the U.S. and in cities for technical assistance delivery, infrastructure creation, uh, you know, affordable housing, all these programs. But because of the lack of knowledge between the two entities, the money doesn't get spent. Just like you said, there is a lot of resources, free of money available. I feel like IEDC has a unique role here in educating the federal, like you just mentioned, and the local partners and kind of unlocking already existing resources. Uh, is that something you've given thought to? I think we've started to think about how, how we can play a role there. Right? The, the really difficult thing about your question is not just accessing the funds, which is already a really difficult thing. But once you access the funds, understanding the rules and regulations by which you, got, you have to use those funds, the reporting structure that comes alongside that, all of those things are, are foreign to many communities. It, it's just not something they do on a regular basis, whether that's small businesses or, or municipalities. And so, number one, that's intimidating. But number two, that's really time-consuming. And some of those things are difficult, not just from a technical standpoint to execute, but also a capacity standpoint to actually you know, go and do the economic development work that you're supposed to be doing, but then also be able to report on it. And the reporting is really critical because you can actually then look at the data and understand the impact that's being made. So please don't un- misunderstand what I'm saying. All of this is really critical and important. But to your point of why aren't communities or small businesses doing that, it's because it feels like too much of a burden for what is coming. And so if there's ways for us to think about how do we streamline the process or make it easier, not just for access, but the reporting and the backend pieces, I think that that is one piece. There's also an education component to, to communities and to small businesses about how they can streamline that process themselves. So it doesn't have to feel as intimidating as it might feel on the front end or quite frankly in the back end. And where they do have questions, we've got to create a resource to allow them to ask questions and to get feedback in a quick way. It, it can feel a little bit like a black box when you're trying to communicate with a federal program. Uh, PPP is just a great example of that, right? I mean, for two months, many banks weren't even registered to be able to, 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 to access the funds. And that's banks. These are major, huge institutions, some of the biggest banks in the world that didn't have systems set up. So think about the small banks uh, the small other you know financing institutions that that took a long time to get to be a part of the PPP process, let alone the actual small businesses that wanted to access the funds. So we've got to figure out a way to to continue to keep the accountability measures that are so important from these federal funds, but also create as as easy a pathway for people to participate as possible. Let me shift topics. There are like three or four topics I want to ask you questions on. This is fascinating. I, you know, I wish we could do this in person, but we will eventually, we're looking forward to Oklahoma City 
uh, in the fall uh, as yes. well. And I know that Richardson, Texas is coming in the summer. Uh, definitely uh, looking forward to that. Uh, let me ask you a question about uh, how cities create wealth. And and you've got, you know, all these different uh, vehicles. You've got the business attraction retention uh, expansion there. You've got the high-tech, high-growth startups uh, in the middle. And then you've got the small businesses. And when you look at the, the overall uh, picture, how do cities now understand what are the what they should be looking at, what they should be focusing on? Because when you say startups, a very small fraction of them benefit. And a lot of times the money doesn't stay in the economy. When you look at small businesses, sometimes you feel like you're not moving the needle because there's a huge volume play that requires support and structure, et cetera. And then you look at the business attraction and it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a zero-sum game. You win some, you lose some. Net-net <laughs> is zero. How, how do you, do you create a portfolio? How do you look at wealth of cities and cities that actually create long-term wealth for their communities? So I think part of this is, is turning the conversation on its head a little bit. We've always talked about incentives, and incentives are a part of the economic development spectrum. I think we need to be talking about investments. How are we investing in our community that's going to provide long-term wealth creation opportunities? That includes the infrastructure investments that are happening now as a part of the the major legislation that happened last year. I mean, this is a generational investment in infrastructure, and we've got to think about it as an investment. It's not just simply putting money here. It's, It's investing in your community investing in the long-term prosperity of your community. They're going to allow for small business growth and entrepreneurship. It's going to allow for large companies to, to either stay in the community, grow and expand in the community. And we've got to think about how do we invest in ways that are going to create long-term wealth creation for a multitude of economic development opportunities. The other thing I would say about this is small business growth is the pillar of economic development in communities of all sizes. Whether you're a community of 500 or a community of 500,000 or a community of 5 million, small businesses are the lifeblood of your community. It's where your community sits. It's where they participate in daily life. And it also is oftentimes the most resilient aspect of of your economy. Whether you're in the boom times or whether you're in a recession. uh, Now, small businesses, don't get me wrong, get extremely hurt in recessions and they're probably the first uh, along that pathway, you know, to, to, to really have to pivot. But the beauty of small businesses is that they do pivot, right? Most, almost every small business, whether you're a barbershop or whether you're a high tech, you know, growth company is going to be really in tune with your local community and the opportunities that exist and also the issues that are present in your community. And so as we think about investing in multiple economic development approaches, small business always has to be a piece of that puzzle. It doesn't always have to be high tech, high growth. It could be low tech, low growth, but that still stays local in the approach. But you also have to balance that out. You can't just focus on small business and entrepreneurship. You can't just focus on business retention and attraction for one big employer or one big industry. You've got to figure out a way to diversify that so that when there's a natural disaster or an economic disaster, you're not solely relying on one company or one industry or one area of your economic development portfolio that you've built out opportunities for them to continue to grow, to work with one another when there are difficult times and to create that that wealth that is going to just not just stick locally, but be there long-term. Thank you for saying that small businesses are the future for economic development. You know, our, our, 
our mission statement is that entrepreneurship is the best path to wealth creation. And so we, we believe that. Tell me if you see this in your data, because uh, one thing that I'm starting to see very, very early days, so I can't prove that yet. Uh, but what I'm starting to see is that um, during uh, a recession, actually, there's a, usually a spike in entrepreneurship. Uh, the reason being that uh, when people uh, lose their jobs, they want to take a bet with their nest eggs. Also, recessions create a lot of opportunity for an entrepreneur to, to see gaps, et cetera. And then with COVID money going away, I'm slowly starting to see the wheels slow down a little bit because a lot of communities had COVID money to play with. And they really invested in small businesses, infrastructure, et cetera. As it's starting to slow, one of the things that I think is critical to wealth creation is the safety net when somebody fails. Can you make failure safe? Because in five years, 50% of all businesses will fail and they've shown it over the last 80 years. And this data is recession proof. In a, in a spike and in a recession, the 50% number is always held true in the last 80 years, right? So you know that half of your businesses will fail in five years. How can you create that safety net so that you are creating a culture of, entrepreneurship and the ability to fail forward and be able to move on and it's non-stigmatized and you actually celebrate both starts and failures. There are some communities like Denver that's almost part of their DNA to the point where people are rapidly prototyping over and over again, right? And then you create a lot of ideas. Uh, how can communities do that? No, and I, I don't know if I'm wrong, so you can correct me if you're, if you're not seeing this early indicator, but I'm getting a sinking feeling that as COVID money goes away, some of that safety net that existed for entrepreneurship is going to go away or it's going to get really hard unless people can identify ARPA funds to plug that gap because ARPA does allow for equitable access. It talks about equity in the funds itself, right? Unless they know how to plug that back in, they're going to lose out. Well, I can't speak to the data, but I can talk anecdotally. So what I think you're saying is, is, is spot on in that you've got to create not just a safety net, but a pipeline of opportunities is the way that I think about it is you can't just say, oh, we've got these four small businesses that are doing really well. We're going to rely on those and not focus on anything else. You've got to continue to cultivate and create an ecosystem that allows for more small business growth and, and large business growth, quite frankly, in communities of all sizes. You've got to think about not just what's working today, but what's going to what's going to set you and your community up for opportunities in three years, five years, 15 years, 25 years down the line and not and constantly be evolving your approach. You can't you can't rely on oh this is how it's always worked and it's always going to continue this work with, this way because we know that economic transformation is happening on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And so you've got to make sure you're continuing to build that pipeline of opportunities. A great example of that is in what you just talked about with ARPA funds. There are some really unique flexibilities in those funds that are going to allow for communities to identify what the gaps are and how do they provide that. One great example of that, especially with the COVID pandemic, where we've had you know people working from home in most cases, is as that starts to evolve and people maybe start to come back to work or think about what that work environment looks like, childcare is going to be a really critical component to making sure that families can continue to operate small businesses, for example, or go to to work in a in a large company, but still have those services provided for their kids, especially you know young families. Thinking about how communities address that child care gap and invest in their community in ways they're going to provide child care or other support services are a part of this conversation. It's not just, 
let's just invest in this economic development program. It's also how do we create the services and that quote unquote safety net for those small businesses to continue to grow and operate so that if, if one fails and they want to start another one, they feel like they've got the opportunity, the capacity, the resources to be able to do that. And the community has to feel like they're doing that together. Okay, last question. I, it's such a fun conversation. I want to keep going, but we try to record one car drive's length. So it's like, you know, 30 minutes. So before we go into like closing credits, one last question, and this is passion, something I'm passionate about, is innovation. Uh, innovation on fintech, innovation on, uh, and when I say innovation, it's not about the high growth, high tech startup thing, but the innovation around how we do economic development. Can you talk to like, you know, uh, are you passionate about that? You know, where do you see 10 years from now IEDC's role in driving innovation around economic development? I think you have to. It, if you don't, you're leaving yourself behind and you're leaving your industry behind. Innovation is, is the core to any industry and any work that you're doing. Now, that looks and feels differently uh, in different industries, in different communities. And you're right. It's not just high tech, high growth. Although, you know, with, with COVID, you know, I could see virtual reality becoming a larger role in, in economic development in ways that we haven't seen in the past. That doesn't mean that's the only approach, uh, but it, those, it's just one example of, of ways that I could see an evolution happening in economic development. But I also think that there are some low-tech opportunities to think about innovating. And part of that stems from my rural background and, and that you know technology and innovation looks and feels a little bit differently in, in small communities than it does in big communities. But I think there's also a natural evolution and innovation to all of the ways that we work. There is such a great and rich history in economic development that IEC has been a huge part of for the past 40 years. It doesn't mean that those pieces of economic development haven't grown and innovated over those 40 years. They have. It's been a natural part of this progression. And so we need to continue to build upon the legacy that's been built to figure out which of those strategies continues to be relevant and work in today's environment and which of those is going to continue to be relevant in five years from now or 10 years from now? And how do we make sure that we're bringing the next generation of leaders into these conversations and letting them play a role in, in figuring out what that future is and, and utilizing the foundation that's been built over so many years to not walk away from that, but build upon it. So uh, tell us how people can follow your work, follow the IEDC's work and how, you know, if I'm, if there's an economic developer listening, how they can get to be a member of the IEDC. We're members, we're on advisory boards. We love the work IEDC is doing. We talk about IEDC all the time. And when, when I heard that you were becoming the CEO, I was so thrilled. Uh, I've been following your work, following Rural Rise and supporting Rural Rise over the years. So uh, I think you bring so much to the table. Uh, how can people be a part of this movement? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be with you and, and to start the conversation. I look forward to many more of these yes. for sure. It's, it's very simple. Number one, easiest way is to go to our website, which is iedconline.org. Uh, we'd love you to come and learn more about the organization, learn more about the opportunities and resources that are available as a part of membership. But you can also participate in our conferences. You mentioned earlier, we've got uh, what we call the Economic Future Forum coming up in Richardson, Texas this June. We've got our annual conference coming up in September, which will be in Oklahoma City. So you can participate in conferences. We do webinars really regularly, several a month. Uh, so you can participate in those webinars. There's some that are free, some that are paid. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We've got a Twitter account and an Instagram account uh, So and, and LinkedIn, certainly. So there's lots of ways to get engaged, to understand what we're doing. Uh, but also feel free to reach out. Uh, you can reach out to me directly. You can reach out through our website 
to get more information. And we're happy to share what we're working on, but also what others are working on in the economic development field. Nathan Noll, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much and good luck on this journey. And we'd definitely like to have you back very soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is produced by Jackie Dietrich and edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.